0: I had a little question mark in my notes here whether to start in an awkward way. Yeah, do it? All right, let's do it. I got permission. Let's make it as awkward as possible, okay? New York Times wrote this recently. The many students enmeshed in the called admissions scandal that was unveiled last week now face a reckoning as universities seek to determine whether they were innocent victims who should keep working toward their degrees or unethical schemers, worthy of discipline. So, the question being, did they know the truth about their enrollment, or were they ignorant? This, to me, as it's all over our news, is fascinating. It's fascinating. Did they know why they became who they were, or how they became who they were? How they became that way? This under-the-service enmeshment, as the article says uses or I think exposes more rather rather that that this has also creeped into the church as well. This enmeshment has creeped into the church as well, where more and more professing Christians are unaware of their enrollment. And like the recent dramatic college scandal, it has devastating consequences far more than some full house star could ever receive. But of course, from our scripture reading, you've hopefully all pieced together what the enrollment that I'm talking about is the enrollment of, of making disciples, making disciples, not merely discipleship. No, no, no. The costly aspect of that discipleship called disciple making. And if you're saying, Casey, what's the diff? It's this. Discipleship is my following Jesus, but lean is me helping someone else follow Jesus. And this topic, I can only hope and pray today for all of us, Christian or not, makes us extremely uncomfortable. I want us to be uncomfortable today, not because it's condemning or because we're shamed or because this is a boring topic, but uncomfortable to those here who interact with the Bible as something that's just merely outdated. I want us to be uncomfortable for those here who believe that Jesus possesses great advice, but not so much great authority uncomfortable those who who interact with the church and its purpose, its missional purpose, casually. Because this topic of today's talk is what collective church is here for, period, full stop. This isn't Lorenzo or mine's pet project. This is our attempt at championing Matthew chapter 28, what we just read. To us, that's why the church as an institution was established, again, author C.S. Lewis, who I quote way too much. He always says it better, but he says this. The church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ and to make them little Christ. If they are not doing that, then all of the cathedrals and clergy and missions and sermons like this one, even the Bible itself, are simply a waste of time. A waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. My biggest fear in full confession was starting a church that became a waste of time. It was a huge, huge fear of mine. So mission members here or friends or visitors or even there who don't follow Jesus, as you've seen, I am preaching from a text that is extremely well-worn, but I would say it's not been worn out. And although it was spoken over 2,000 years ago, it has not yet been exhausted of its richness or its content or of its applications. So even though these types of talks have been preached thousands of times, if you've been in a church a while, you've probably heard this talk, these verses way too much. So I ask that you then, if that's the truth, that you would bear with me as today will be a tad more practical because I cannot say what needs to be said without saying what has already been said. In fact, rarely is it ever my purpose to get behind this super ghetto pulpit and to try to break new ground. That is never my purpose. Actually, I seek to till very old ground. The ground like Matthew 28, this dirt bed mountain where the enrollment first took place. So if you will, look down at your Bibles, Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. We're going to get right into it. So with that, I want us to see, yeah, verse verse, verse 16. It says, then the 11 disciples. Notice how heartbreaking those words are. Notice how they limp into the passage. It's now 11. It was 12. Judas is no more. All of us know that. went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. If you've ever read or if you will ever read the Gospel of Matthew, you will notice that important things always took place on mountains from his sermons to the transfiguration to now. But this mountaintop experience is extremely different, and I want us to feel it. I want us to slow down and draw this out. This right now is a final goodbye of sorts. Anybody remember the ending of Wizard of Oz, where Dorothy went around and like kissed everybody's forehead? It's sort of that weird, like, beautiful moment, or the ending of Casablanca where after three and a half years with Jesus, these once fishermen and now followers have seen mind-bending miracles. They've seen Jesus start a winery and cook rosé from water. They've seen incredible things. They've heard his challenging teachings. teachings. They've seen him flip tables. They've seen him snap-stop a storm. They've seen him exercise demons. So much to take in. I mean, what stands out when everything you experience is revolutionary? And now, And now, the pure euphoria of sitting before a resurrected man on a mountain who only days ago was a dead man on a tree. Matthew's gospel actually ends much like Casablanca, where the real relationship starts at the end, not the beginning. So collective, know this as we're about to read these next verses. Everything, everything, everything has been in preparation for this moment. Feel it. Feel it. Verse 18. And Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Everything has been in preparation for the responsibility that comes from believing. What we just read, we cannot just read and then move on. We must chew on this bone. For example, notice the frequent use of the word alls. Alls, everything's being encompassed in this. Also, scholars for centuries have constructed and deconstructed and reconstructed these final words and it's considered by Christian and not. All scholars, historians saying this is an absolute masterpiece, the way this is laid out. German historian Adolf Harnack, if that's how you pronounce it, says one cannot say anything greater or more in 40 words. It is quite funny that we live in a world where we're trying to change lives or make impact with 140 characters, and Jesus changes the course of history in half of that. All of that making this famously known as the Great Commission. The Great Commission. And of course, Jesus didn't call that. He wasn't like, come over here and listen to my Great commission, come on. He didn't call it that. This was very famously called or popularized by Hudson Taylor. He coined that where he said the great commission is not an option to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed. So Taylor is right, so right to the point that we wanted to make sure that this was the crescendo to our very short four-week series to what it means to be or to bear a profile of a disciple each of us wanting to understand or wanting this church to know that we are trying to cultivate a culture of maturing and responsible disciples to hope and grow in our awareness and the responsibility of that very enrollment. So let us just say this, the pastors would never hope that this church would be a church where discipleship is reduced to a little cheesy canned program. Good Lord, no. Or a family would sit sidelined as like sort of a spectator sport. Or spectator mentality. We want this to be a place not where Christians come and believe and delegate responsibilities to just pastors or missionaries or the ministers or professionals. Actually, if you remember, some might remember from way back in the day we went through the book of Acts, it was through the truth of Jesus that spread the furthest was through the hands of congregants, not through the hands of clergy. So what we're about to go over, I want us to realize, showers upon all Christians. What we're about to read, we have to read it as if it was directed to your very face. Is that sinking in? As if this was said directly to you. Again, this will make some of us uncomfortable because there's no ominous wonderment. There's no, well, that's a translation issue. No, no, it's clear as crystal. Here it is. God's plan for discipleship, mission, touching the world, redemption is not a something. Something but he's sum 1. You are God's method. We are God's method. So the question again is, are you aware of this enrollment? I was talking with Lorenzo this week. I don't know about you, but I hope we're sick, to, sick of hearing or annoyed at saying or whatever you want to say at this idea of, am I called to missions? Are we called to missions? Like it was some sort of draft to a war back in the day. Am I going to go or am I going to run to Canada? No. What I think for some of us today is going to happen is we're going to wake up in the foxhole. We've already been sent. The question cannot be, am I going anymore? The question is now, did you know that you've already arrived? Verse 19, let's break this down. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, if there are any Bible thumper, Bible nerds here, or those who care about author intent, which is good, those neat and packaged words of go, baptize, teach, all derive their force from one controlling verb, which is make, make. Essentially, what I'm trying to say is a paintbrush or paint, has no purpose if it's not spread upon a canvas. Going, baptizing, and teaching are only good insofar that they contribute to making disciples. Leaving us to ask the question, then what does it mean, Casey, to make? What does it mean to make? Well, a lot of us get it. We are in a making city. That is a familiar sound to all of us. We make things. And to just fully understand LA as a maker culture, I I did some Googling and I found some interesting maker meetups on meetup.com. Anybody go to meetup.com? Nobody? Liars. (laughs) Liars. So there's thousands of different maker meetups that you could all be a part of. I'm just going to highlight some of the most interesting. Okay, these are maker maker meetups. For instance, oh man, these are so good. (laughs) For instance... You can go to the Future of Hardware Maker Meetup. Nobody thinks that's interesting? A group of people talking about the future of hardware? You guys are weird. Whatever. Or the Government Hackers Maker Meetup. These are real. I will send you links. Or how about this? Crunchy Crafters Meetup. I thought you guys would have a much bigger response to this. I don't know what Crunchy Crafters is. There's a ukulele meetup? Dude, yes. And the last one, which terrified me the most and intrigued me, and I'm going next Friday Snake Eaters meetup. <laughs> and then, oh, well, actually, there's one more Small Satellite meetup where they make satellites and they throw them into the air. <laughs> so, again, we're all got to be honest. These sound amazing. These sound amazing. But if I understand one small inkling of these maker groups, it's that none of who they are or what they do is by accident. We do not make things by accident. Not marriages, not enchiladas. We don't wake up and go, I made a birdhouse. It doesn't happen by accident. Disciples who follow Jesus must be formed. Write that on your face. They must be formed. Our only commission in the great commission is to purposely make, okay? And the original language, go, is not a command. Teach is not a command. Baptize is not a command. So if you wanted to make an overkill of a translation, it'd be something like this. As you're going, make disciples. As you're teaching, make disciples. As you're baptizing, make disciples. That's what its original language is talking about. That's the ethos of it, an all-encompassing, meaningful, moment-by-moment reality. But before we go into the rest of the verses, which inform us how, what would you say is the reason people don't make disciples? Let's get personal. What are some of the reasons that you don't, or I don't, or we don't make disciples? If I may, can I throw out some bangers and you tell me if any of them stick? Sound good? Yes. All right, so I'm just going to work down this list. Because you or others have never been discipled yourself. You can't tell me to row when I've never been in a boat. Actually, that's pretty good. I just made that up on the fly. That's good. That's not bad. Dang. Preaching's easy, you guys. You should do this. It's easy. Holy crap. Man. Okay, next. Are we confused on methods? Yes. <laughs> you don't have to call out I don't, if you don't want to. You can if you want. That's good, Lily. I just don't want Yeah, right. <laughs> That's forever on the podcast. You, how about because of comfortableness or even laziness? How about am I too busy? How about has fear trumped obedience? How about because it's the pastor's responsibility? Blech. How about feeling underqualified? Now, if any of that is true, then let's seek to burn the next few verses into our hearts and mind. Sound good? Verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptism. Isn't it funny that of all the things that, that could have been said about making Jesus followers, baptism is chosen as a gear for making disciples? Not 30 hours of prayer, not 30 hours of fasting, baptism. One of my favorite things we as a family do is the ability to baptize people here. It's epic. If you haven't been a part of it, you're missing out. It is beautiful. If you're unfamiliar with this sacramental practice, disciples, followers, apprentices of Jesus must be plunged into the water, period. This is not, people ain't gonna like this, this isn't extra credit. This isn't optional. This is the glorious act of first obedience to publicly, physically, visibly be marked. Think of it almost as a branding. Baptism is like a branding. And what are we branded with? The name of the Father who planned our salvation, the name of the Son who accomplished it, and the name of the Holy Spirit who enables us to live differently because of it. I read an article recently about LeBron James. Rare, I know. (laughs) It showed up when I was reading about superheroes or something. Well, LeBron James. What's interesting is he... Was going off about how much he regretted naming his son LeBron James Jr. So, it was one of his biggest regrets in naming one of his kids that. One of the major reasons is because his kid wanted to have a career in sports. And LeBron James Jr. is going to go up going, I'm going to be in constant comparison. I'm going to feel inadequate. I'm never going to match up to King James. You shocked that I knew that? I am too. Actually, to bring it home, what's really funny is I can't introduce anybody to my son, Moses, without them going, well, you have a lot to live up to, don't you? <laughs> yeah, my son has a lot to live up to, Red Sea parting, plague calling, the meekest man on the world. Thanks for telling him that. <laughs> Everybody does it. <laughs> You've got a lot. Or even me. You know what I'm named after? Anybody remember that old cartoon about Casey at the Bat? He would let two balls go by every time, super cocky, and he'd let go by, and then all over the third one, he'd hit a home run. My dad named after that because he was like a sportsaholic, and I know nothing about sports. <laughs> Take that, dad. <laughs> but this father, this father, this father is entirely and eternally ready to identify with you. God says, give them my name. Give them my name. An immovable, unbeatable, thunderous name. So why is baptism mentioned at all in this list of how to make disciples? It's because Jesus is saying that all disciples must release finding their identity in in what they do or what they possess or finding their name in their greatest accomplishments or for some of us, finding our name in our worst of accomplishments. You are not baptized into your failures. You are not baptized into your fortunes. Through baptism, through adoption, through conversion, God is saying, I identify with them as they identify with me. We are saying, I identify with God as he has identified with me. Followers of Jesus, if you have not yet been submerged into the water and raised out of it as a symbol of death and then into a new life, we invite you right now, very practically, not to get baptized. We're not going to do that right now. But what we encourage is sending us an email or talking to the people at the Connect table because we are doing baptisms at Easter. They're always beautiful. They're always epic. And this is a very huge part of your discipleship. Okay? We want to celebrate possibly you who fearlessly stood unashamed to say that I'm with him. Okay, verse 20. Teaching them to observe... And then I want you to notice the heavy tone here we're about to go into that Christ's words sort of float with. To observe all that I have commanded you. I have commanded you. This is Jamba Juicy. Are we drinking this in? Baptisms, like conversion, happen in a moment. It is a one-time, single act. But teaching... Teaching, no, 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 that does not happen in a moment as easily or as great as that would be. This lays upon all Christians here an involved, extended, intentional, patient process. There's more of that uncomfort. So how about you? Do you find even me just saying involved an extended process, intentional process, do you find me just saying that exhausting? Oh, Jesus, this sounds like more of a burden, more of the church telling me what I gotta do. If we land on that island, I want to encourage a reimagining. Yes, it's hard to apply the Great Commission. It's extremely hard to apply the Great Commission. But when we make an effort, then we live into this high impact, joyous, life reorienting, refreshing form of Christianity. True form Christianity. Now, sadly, the poisonous gas leak, which has silently been killing disciple-making, possibly in this church, but churches across the globe, is seen teaching as exclusively as informational rather than holistic, okay? That brings a certain decay. Often the heart is overlooked in discipleship programs or traditional classroom models. In other words, a veneer of understanding, this historical rabbi does not change you and it does not change me any sort of just outside fringe type information will not change us. Whenever we focus intently on a body of information to be learned, there's an assumption that heart and character will follow and that is completely wrong. That's wrong. We don't want followers here at Collective Church to, to believe in Jesus. Our, our, really, our hope is to try to get followers of Jesus who believe in him, believe what he says, believe Just him ruthlessly. And I want to, Brennan Brennan Manning says it better than I could. He, He says this. The problem with all this intellectualizing is that it allowed us to wrap the crucified Christ up in words. As we focused on theology, we separated ourselves from his humanity. We married him only for our minds. So there was never any pressure in our guts to change our lives. So to resort to any sort of mechanics or philosophies is a removal of this beautiful pressure or any concept of striving or wrestling or imaginations or reimaginations, or one another in a growth or development has been taken away if we only make it intellectualizing or only teaching in that form. And I guess Christians, I think we all get it. If you're here and you're a Christian, I think you get it. Meaning, you probably come up here and confess that no scientific equation, no arithmetic or informational proof texting convinced you to start following Jesus. I mean to say it a little bit more bearishly, the devil has that same level of information. The devil has that same level. So to be honest, he probably has more than a lot of Christians do. But teaching one to observe, teaching one to observe means to keep preserve, to obey all that I have commanded, that rises somebody above the level of information that the enemy possesses. Our assignments are to teach one another in such a way that we and they are utterly transformed to the point of supreme obedience. Me just telling you about Jesus is not enough. I have to guide you. We have to guide one another And that happens by guiding and developing an affection for the father as well as a mind for truth. Christians, are you doing this? Others here, are you receiving this? This is why discipleship groups at our church are amongst our highest, if not our most highest priority. And if I can just for a moment, forgive me, I'm just gonna speak to those here who are in discipleship groups or those here who consider this their church. Everybody else, I apologize, but I have to speak to a very direct group of people. Our discipleship at this church, our disciple making approach here is not reduced to a Bible reading plan. It is not reduced to a program and it can never be reduced to critiquing Sunday sermons. It's asking the question, who am I accountable to? And who is accountable to me and the local church family? Okay? If you say, if you're answering that question in your heart and you say, no one, Or if you say, my girlfriend drags me here. We're not being discipled. We're not making disciples. That makes me nervous. So when we talk about teaching to observe, the aim is always, as the book of Hebrews said, which we spent way too long in, it says to stir one another up to love and good deeds, not to inform one another. If you're in discipleship groups have not yet been uncomfortable, you're doing it wrong. I'm doing it wrong. If we don't leave going, dang, that was quite a spanking. Or dang, I I do feel accountable. Or they feel accountable to me. We are doing something wrong. Again, this happens intentionally. So to come to these groups unprepared, unprepared, where we don't answer the realm of questions, what does this passage speak of Jesus? What does this passage speak of me and my sin? And what does it look like for those who I'm accountable to, to support me through it? These are the type of questions we need to be wrestling with and bring to our discipleship groups. And if we don't, then what do you want from that time? You're wasting their time and, you're, and they're wasting yours. And I say that respectfully, but I respect your time. So if we start coming to these groups and like, I got nothing. They didn't really do much for me this week. Then we didn't read it or study it or work towards it or ask the Holy Spirit to really bring us to a spot where we could share something that was worth sharing. My hope is that we would see discipleship here or interact with it here, that it wasn't a place or a setting where what we received was the only measure if we're going to be involved or not. I'm not really receiving a lot. That's the measurement? How much you receive? What if discipleship here was held with the same level of importance of Christ's own words on this mountaintop? What if discipleship here was more about multiplication than us trying to keep a certain group of friends together? What if discipleship in your groups was more about shaping people into Christ's likeness versus shaping them into our best friends? How we practically do any of that is this, and hopefully this is helpful, by studying the content, concentrating on the good news contained in Scripture. Not our corks or ideologies or some latest Christian practical living book or hobby horses, but the main things. The next thing would be the intent is always multiplication. Not addition. We do not care about adding chairs here. We do not care. We do not care about adding groups. We care about multiplication. The success to measure if we are successfully discipling people is this. Has a person I just discipled made a disciple? That's how we know if it's been successful. And lastly, the context is relationship. Meaning books, sermons, conferences, articles play a wonderful supplementary part in the discipleship program. But no distant writer or speaker or preacher can sit across from you or I and apply Christian truth precisely to your specific point in life. Disciples like good pizza are handmade, right? (laughs) Jot it down. One relationship at a time parent-to-child relationships. Actually, can we just, this is, I'm off my notes now. Uh Uh-oh. Parent-to-child, the church is not supposed to disciple your own children. Okay? We as parents are called to disciple our children. An entire mind shift should happen when we go, crap, I'm supposed to disciple these little punks. (laughs) Kids are awesome. I'm just messing. They're cool, whatever. (laughs) But literally, it's like, no, no, no. It is not your Christian education or your buddy's job Or the pastor's job to disciple our own children. It is the parent's job. And this can happen with new Christians, the pastors and pastors and new Christians and brother to sister and sister to sister and brother to brother. Those type of relationships. But because Jesus didn't say, teaching them all that I have commanded you. He didn't say that. Because if he would have, that would have been really hard. But because he said, teaching them to observe, uh, that is something infinitely harder. Infinitely It's one thing to put commandments in people's heads. It's a completely whole other thing to shepherd their hearts towards a renewed emphasis and a renewed nature. So all that to say is simply, it's impossible. It's just impossible. It's impossible for me, it's impossible for you. Only God can do that, which is why the Great Commission contains one of the greatest promises in all of the Bible. But first, before we go to that, I want us to melt our faces a little bit with verse 16. Verse 16 to 17 is so powerful. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And look at this. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. But some doubted. 11 men sitting there, looking as a resurrected man. I can only imagine they doubted the physicality of his body, his biology, or the physics of how or what they saw, probably like some of us are doing today. While at the same time, it'd be no shock to speculate, they're also doubting their own abilities and competencies at what Jesus is calling them to, or doubting the truthfulness of who they are post-resurrection. But this uncomfortable, impossible, disruptive, humbling and stunning commission for some reason enrolls worshipful doubters. Thank God, thank God it says this. Because it's not enrolling these elite soldier-esque sentinels, worshipful doubters, 11 men to go and change the world. Thank God the Christian faith and the great commission has has a bipolarity to it that adorning and wonder or trust and questions and worship and doubt can and do exist. Because, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to us, has been given to the president, has been given to kings and Caesar, to Jesus. I love how theologian Abraham Kuyper says this hopefully it brings it more to life, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Mine. Again, the most unpopular message in all of Los Angeles is that right there. In other words, despite our ability to change someone, despite our insecurities and competencies, (laughs) the mission will not fail. You and I cannot, I can Unintentionally, by you know, sabotaging this by not being a part of it or whatever, but his authority overall must bring comfort to those of us who spike with anxiety because of our lack of authority. And then verse twenty again. Oh gosh! And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. I love that at the beginning of the Matthew's Gospel it says, "Call him Emmanuel." It means God is with us. And at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, that's exactly who I am. I am with you always. So then I understand, to understand this means that no matter what, or no matter our doubts or our fears or our inadequacies or our lack of love and joy, no matter our past troubles, abortions, divorces, abuse, and anger, Jesus says, you're the type of person I want to use. Jesus says, You're the type of person that cannot be separated from me. I'm not going anywhere. And you will never be alone. Never. Do you believe this? This, I will be with you to the end of time, is truthfully what the sentiment is about. Jesus is promising to be the happy ending of the world's and our own personal history. For me personally, one of the reasons I love Jesus Christ and seek to give my life to helping others experience that love is because of this very promise. Simply, He has just kept it. When Jesus says never, when Jesus says always, He means it. I hope one day, if you haven't already, you know the sweetness of that truth and experience. But in closing, I want this entire sermon or entire talk to talking to Christians and the church's desire to making more followers. So then I should probably address the unchristians or those here who don't want to follow Jesus and what they might be thinking. Because I can only assume there's an aspect of, geez, Casey, good golly, all these Christians, all these churches, all they want to do is convert us. Give it up. And we say, dudes, I get it. Los Angeles dwells in the ancient grounds of what works for me, I cannot push on you to work for you. I cannot force other people to believe what I believe. And beyond that, to even just tell the nations, as the scripture says, what to believe, it's intense. So let's turn up the heat a little bit more, actually. To tell somebody that if they don't believe what I believe, then they're condemned to an eternity in hell. Can we all relate to that fear and awkwardness? So all that to say, if I were in your shoes and you're here and you're not following Jesus and you're hearing all this, I would totally agree. I would get it. Could there be anything more smug or pretentious than saying something like that? We all agree that it is the most arrogant thing one could say to anybody else. If. If. It wasn't true. If it wasn't true. So are we trying to convert? Hell, yes. Yes. But not because we think that you're bad and we're good or you're ignorant and we're enlightened, but it would be an even greater arrogance to behold the words of eternal life and to not teach others to observe them. In fact, I would call that evil. I would call that evil. So allow me to say this brutally. If you don't believe in Jesus, you are not a follower, easy enough. But if you believe in the authority and the action and the accomplishments of Christ, if you believe and yet even still have some small doubts with the resurrection from the dead, you can't not declare it. You can't not. So we make disciples not because the Bible mandated us or because it's some superficial duty you and I, this church, seeks to make disciples because it has become our soul's supreme desire. As it is Christ's soul supreme desire. And if we don't do this, no matter how good or faithful we are at everything else, you could have the richest, most beautiful quiet times with the Lord on mornings with peppermint mochas and your moleskin open, whatever. You can give a million dollars to this church every day. You could spend a thousand hours in prayer. You could be in a thousand discipleship groups. You could bring the world's greatest burrito to neighborhood dinner. <gasps> but if we don't lovingly and graciously and patiently devote ourselves to guiding and helping others follow Jesus, then we fail. We fail. The mission won't, but this church could. So today, I ask, I ask, I ask, I ask for us to pray. There's going to be people up against that wall and up against that wall wearing yellow lanyards. I would, I would implore you as we're doing this entire series, more than an invitation, if you consider this your church, would you go pray that people are be turning into to disciples, real, authentic, honest disciples where they're observing and are preserving what Christ has commanded? Would we go pray for that? You can go as a couple, you can go as a married person, you can go as a single, whatever it is, but let's go up and let's pray that this church is about multiplication, not addition that this church would be successful by the standards of Scripture. We're gonna do that in just a moment. I'd also say, let's also worship. And what's beautiful is we can see anything from Scripture from today is that it's possible to worship and still still be peppered with bits of doubt. In fact, that's the greatest time to worship. So if this is your first time here, we encourage you to stand. You can lift your arms. You can come to the carpet. But let us sing together. And lastly... Christians, this is for you. If you see up here on my right my left, communion tables, stack cups. I love that at the end of the Great Commission, rather than all the disciples being like, yeah, let's go, let's burn this place down. Jesus says, whoa, 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 wait. Jesus says, wait, 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 wait. And he's telling them to wait for the spirit because he knew first and foremost, if you're gonna guide others to me, then you must know what it's like to be with me. Today, before we go out there or do whatever, may we be with Jesus. May we be in that upper room as we're waiting for the spirit to fall. May we understand what it looks like to wait patiently, knowing that it's not our ability. It's not our works. It's not our powers. It's his. We are nothing. We cannot do anything. We cannot accomplish anything unless we wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to fall on us. So when we go up and take communion, what we're proclaiming is Jesus. We are with you. We need you. And we are absolutely desperate. Amen? Let me pray for you.